Ochoa, I have a question for you today, which is, you, when I, when I, when we first started working together, uh, you and I had the experience of having similar jobs, but different jobs kind of at the same time, you were really pushing and kind of the steward of the maker space at our campus. And you took pride in a lot of the stuff and you brought in things from like your house. I mean, you just had all kinds of stuff going in there. We've shared the story about how students that I was working with as a literacy coach got ideas from working with you in the makerspace. And we had, you know, it was like this weird, you know, symbiotic relationship thing going on. And kids went in there for lunch. And I don't want to spoil too much because now I feel like I'm answering your question for you. But my question is, how do you, how do you view makerspaces just in general? You have probably, I mean, you definitely have more experience with them than I do. So what do you see these as serving in in modern schools and and do you see a, are they are they something that are going to stick around or is it just a fad well i i whether it's sticking i think it's going to stick around but i think it could be a fad depending on your administration and how they feel about makerspace because they can end it real fast by not supporting it it's something that really does need a lot of support uh if it's going to work so anyway um uh, uh, how do I see it? Well, the way uh, we ended up with our makerspace and putting everything in it, uh, just somehow it fell to me. It was a principal that said, Pam, we want you to do that part. And I'm like, okay. So we have this thing called foundational grants. And I wrote a grant and I called that grant, the title of it was a building a literacy library. So I did I did use it in the term of literacy because I really feel that there's more than just uh, knowing how to read an article or knowing, I mean, I think kids need to be literate about their world. And uh, one of the things that uh, I made sure that was in this library, and this is kind of how I went about it, is I ordered all of these books. So I went down to... Uh, Barnes and Noble went on Amazon, wherever I could, and uh, of course looked up researches, research different types of things. And so, what I was looking for is what books will help these students uh, use this uh, library, so therefore they become uh, uh, use this makerspace and the library, so that they can become literate and knowing how to do things and knowing how to follow directions, knowing how to to do that, but also in the and the same time, being able to um, actually participate in what they're reading. Uh, that whole idea came about because I was in another classroom because, you know, I was an academic coach. So I would go in and out of classrooms. So uh, this was like, I think the year before you got there, I went into this classroom and they were reading an informational text on how to build a birdhouse. Okay. And uh we had students that were emerging, you know, language learners and things like that. And so they were like, I don't understand why we're reading this. I, I don't know what it's talking about. And my thought was, well, because they're talking about building something and these students have no experience in building anything. And so because they don't have the experience, they don't have any kind of schema, if you will, to or foundation to lay that learning on. Because one thing about the way the brain works is if 
we build our knowledge on things we already know. That's why background, we, you know, we did an article, um, an episode the other day about building background, correct? Well, part of that building background is offering experiences. And it's through those experiences that we build our learning on, we make those connections so that we can actually connect to more things, which leads to more things, which is what I think literacy is all about, a deeper knowledge of something. And it can be anything, okay? And so to so that's kind of the, the foundation. And I thought makerspace would be a great way to pull this idea of reading and creating and everything, and giving them something tactile to, to learn and actually experience. And so I, I uh, put together a literacy library for the makerspace. So it had books. So they had to be able to read how to do something. So I had books on, um, you know, building a birdhouse, had uh, woodwork. I had books on uh, crocheting. I had books on sewing. I had books on uh, technology, uh, coding, uh, uh, circuits, you know, anything I could find that would be good in the makerspace. So they would read. So when the students would get to a point where they're like, I'm trying to put these circuits together, but I don't know how, I don't know how to go about it. Then we would go to the library that was in the makerspace and we would pull down a book and it would, we would look and the kids would read how to do it. And then they would actually put that in practice. So I feel like makerspace is a way for students to, to build or to create um, an experience to build upon so that they can learn even more things. And so that's kind of uh, how we used it, or at least the attempt was there. Uh, we had a green screen and we even had Legos and all that kind of stuff. But I even had books about how to build different things in Legos. We had 3D printer, had books about 3D printing. So the students had to, if they were going to work on something, they also had to check out a book that showed them how to work on it. And then they were able to use it for the most part. Or at least I'd have them out there if we were doing a, a station or something. I would put those books out on that table or point to the students where they were. So I felt like it was... Um, assisted uh the development of literacy does that make sense it does and i think that fits perfectly into our conversation today ladies and gentlemen before i tell you about our topics i want to tell you that that's pam ochoa i'm jacob chesson we're two english teachers down here in the state of texas loving what we do in reading and writing workshop we talk about it every single week 45 minutes to an hour sometimes more sometimes less but usually around that sweet spot we dive into the relevant topics around reading, writing, workshops. Sometimes we talk philosophy. Sometimes we talk nuts and bolts. Sometimes we talk about craft and draft, our journal system. And sometimes we talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is something a little bit more uh, topical, something that we think is relevant to this audience and our work. And it's something that I've been pouring over and Pam Ochoa has been looking at. And we wanted to bring this conversation to you. And it is, we're going to be covering something that if you follow me on social media, you've probably been seen. I've shared some quotes from it. I've been engaging with some educators just about the thinking behind it, uh, both good and bad. And but this we're going to be covering the NCTE, which is the National National Council of Teachers of English, um, their new position statement. Which I love that they do this. By the way, I, I'm such a fan of just like as an institution saying like your position statements on a variety of things. I think it's interesting. I think it's 
uh, it's it's a really great exercise in kind of standing up for what you want to do as an institution. And it, it kind of, you put your cards out there, right? And people can agree or disagree, right? They can be a part of it or not be a part of it. But I think that's a, rather than anything being, you know, quote unquote, like shadowy, right? It's just all out there. And people can decide if they agree, disagree, or maybe find themselves somewhere in between. And I think that's a healthy way especially in education, to kind of put it. I think that's what we do on this podcast, Ocho, is, you know, we just put our beliefs out there. We talk very openly. It, very little editing goes into uh, what we do on this show. Um, and we do that because we love transparency. We we don't expect everyone to agree with our statements. Um, but, but, but we want people to to understand that there's there's no ulterior motive here. We want the best teaching. We want to talk about it. And so the fact that NCTE does this stuff is really fascinating to me. But they just released a new position statement called Media Education and English Language Arts. And this is a huge article. We're probably not going to get through uh, even half of what's here. I think we're going to pinpoint some interesting quotes and uh, kind of discuss some of the, the bigger implications of this. So that's what we're covering today, ladies and gentlemen. But I want to tell you that the only reason we're able to do this today is because we have our dedicated listeners over there on Patreon who support us. Currently, our show is being supported by Rebecca, Sarah, Amy, Mark, Leah, Brandy, and Alicia, many of whom have supported us since we started uh having the option available on Patreon, which is absolutely amazing. They get questions read first. They get stuff directed. They have direct contact with us through Patreon, and they get bonus episodes that no one else hears as well. There are currently two over there because the Patreon is still new. We'll be releasing another one very soon, as well as some bonus video content. We currently have our video up there talking about Craft and Draft, walking through what it looks like, how it and everything comes. But We're about to release another video where we actually walk through a lesson. So if you want in on the ground floor of that, be able to ask questions and more, check us out on Patreon. You can support us and make sure this podcast keeps going. It's a little niche podcast, right? It's reading and writing workshop. We exist in this bubble together. So if you like what we do, go support us over there. It'd be uh, absolutely amazing. And if you don't want to do that, hit subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes. Leave a review when you're done listening to this podcast so people know that they should be listening. Those reviews really do help us rank among the best educator podcast out there. But ladies and gentlemen, let's get to this conversation. Alrighty, Miss Ochoa. Uh, media education and English language arts. This is a, a doozy of an article, is it not? This is Yes, it is. It is it is very long. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff here. Um, but if you don't mind, I kind of want to just for, so listeners who haven't looked at this, I kind of want to just kind of, I want to read this overview real quick in kind of a summarized fashion and then kind of go from there. Do you mind if I do so? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So this is the overview and this was posted April 12th, 2022. So this is very recent. They say literacy is expanding and English language arts Educators at all levels must help learners develop the knowledge, skills, and competencies needed for life in an increasingly digital and mediated world. Media education is defined as the study of the media with the aim of cultivating people's media literacy competencies. For people of all ages, media function as a public pedagogy uh, due to their influence influential role in organizing, shaping, and dismantling information, ideas, and values. To address inequalities in digital technologies and competencies, continued curricular 
Uh, continuing curricular innovation in the ELA curriculum at all levels of K through 12 education is needed. In this position statement, we articulate three core themes that make media education fundamental to teaching and learning in ELA education. The three themes that they talk about are exploring representation and power through critical reading, listening, and viewing, empowering voice with writing, speaking, and self-expression, and increasing relevance by critically examining digital media and popular culture. Now, the first thing I want to hit on here, Ms. Ochoa, is this idea of media being a huge part of the English classroom. Um, it's something that's kind of been around forever. Uh, I mean, for me forever, I guess, because the, I remember, you know, we've always like, you know, we have lessons on, you know, ads and, you know, like, you know, examining ads and, and various media. And when I was in high school, my teacher and life mentor hammer, who I've mentioned in so many places, she had us, we did, uh, reading responses to what we were doing as if we were characters on Twitter when Twitter was just like beginning to exist. And that was like our homework was just tweeting out responses as we were reading. And she used those, she like used hashtags to basically, uh, see what we were saying and stuff. And that was, that was pretty interesting. So this has always kind of been here, but this, this article is saying that media function as a public pedagogy due to their influential role. So they're basically saying, because media is so pervasive and everywhere, it has to be something that we bring in uh, at a massive level into education uh, because it does so much in shaping people and the way we think and the way we act. And I think that's a that's a really interesting, I guess, thesis of this entire thing. And I wanted your thoughts on. I mean, do do you think they're hitting the mark? Are they are, are they pushing too much, or is this is this what we need right now? Is this is is their stance of saying media is so pervasive that we we have to figure out how to address this in schools on a, on a big level? Do you think that's accurate thinking? Well, I do think it's accurate in the sense that we definitely need to uh, employ more media because uh, when we talk about literacy, uh, I think that uh, students need to be able to use what's what's there for them and they need to have a deep knowledge of that not only of what they they think but what other people think and they need to be able to be critical about what they read what they see um you know how they go about expressing their their themselves they need to know they need to know where boundaries are they need to know the consequences uh of of things as well you know if it goes too far because i think that's a problem with some of our students is they it's all out there and there's nobody express or telling them exactly where the boundaries are. You know, I mean, we try, but I think, I think if we incorporated it into our um, curriculum and put it out there as, as a front focus, I think right now um, we've always had this multimodal multimedia, you know, uh, let the kids get up and present. When I was younger, it was just presenting a speech, you know, make sure they at least present a speech or present their projects one at a time, which was not very efficient. But now they have so many options. But the problem is it's moving so fast that I don't think they understand where to draw a line. I mean, how do you get your ideas out there and protect yourself? How do you get your ideas out there and make sense? 
how do you uh, intake all of this information and and read it critically so that it benefits you, not not hinders you? And so I think, and of course, there's so much more than that uh, when it comes to, to that. But I think media literacy is one thing uh, I think we really need to uh, to look into so that we can create, uh, I would say, responsible consumers for uh, future you know, when they become adults. Yeah. Well, and this is such a weird time because, uh, everyone has access to everything. Right. And now they mm-hmm. talk about later in this article about how, even though that's true, all devices aren't created equal, all internet services are not created equal. Right. Like right now, like mm-hmm. my son's upstairs on his computer playing an online game. I'm down here connected to the internet on my iPad, my phone, and my laptop. We're zooming a call. I'm recording this program. I have an $800 camera in front of me to look at you through. You're on your own high-end Mac. I have production lights, right? I have all of these things going on, and tons of this is using Wi-Fi and all of this interconnectivity. Not everyone has that, right? Not everyone has the access to this, let alone the internet power to make all of just the internet stuff that I'm doing work seamlessly, right? Um, we we experience this in our school. Like we we're in a fairly you know well off school, and our Wi-Fi messes up all the time, right? Chromebooks, which all of our kids were one to one now, uh, because a COVID kind of forced us to. But every kid has their Chromebook, but all Chromebooks aren't created equal, and we know that for a fact that some of these things break down. So I, I want to hit on that as well later when it comes to this. But um, one thing that's for certain is that. Regardless of the level of people have or the level of access, um, it's there and it's real. And the the changing media, I think, it's, it's happening so fast and it's definitely happening faster than curriculum changes. I think that's indisputable. Whether you agree with what NCTE is advocating for here or not, you cannot disagree, in my opinion, that the world is changing faster than schools. It's changing faster than curriculum. I mean, just in my lifetime alone, I went from, I mean, when I was a teenager in high school, the first iPhone was dropped and now, and it was like, it was, it was like a unicorn, right? When my friends that like got one, it was because their parents, you know, spent like a thousand dollars to get them the first iPhone and it was revolutionary. And now everyone has touch screens and you like, I have like 20 iPhones in my house because my son collects just like old technology. And that, I mean, that's a short period of time, right? I lived through the creation of the iPad and now I have an iPad serving as my second screen right next to me, right? So this stuff is changing, let alone communication. I, you know, social media, I remember when Facebook was the outside thing, and now, now Facebook is a major platform that governments care about, right? right. It, 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 it's not just this outside force anymore. And all the other social media, you know, Twitter is one of the most hotly debated things in the world right now um, for a variety of reasons. But Twitter is is literally, you know, the argument of how much of free speech exists on these platforms when all information is consolidated into social media. What does this mean? And not to get political and to step back from that is this is the, the world that our kids are navigating, 
right? This is the world that they're stepping into. And so I find this paragraph right here interesting where they say context, why now in this article to go back to it, they say today's students live in a highly mediated world or today's students live in highly mediated worlds where information, entertainment, and persuasion are delivered to them through many screens of daily life. If it could ever be said that language is the carrier of all meaning, this is certainly no longer the case. As multimodality represents the normal state of human communication. Now, I think this is fascinating because not too long ago, we had in Texas our standards uh, changed for English. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been working with the new standards for a long time, but the one thing when uh, I was on the curriculum team and are writing curriculum for middle school, you were on the curriculum team. One of the things that uh, was pushed over and over again was multimodal. Everything is multimodal now, right? And it's it was before it existed before this, but it, it had never been pushed, in my opinion, the way it's been pushing now. So this is, I mean, this this is so fascinating to me because they go on to say we no longer live in a print dominant world, uh, text only world. We experience reality through gifts and selfies we share, and memes and videos and articles and films and TV series. Like all of this is so interconnected these days, to where. Their argument is that this should be in schools, and I don't think anyone disagrees with that, but I think the interesting part and what I've seen people throw their hands up in arms is, is the English classroom this place? Does Is it the job of English teachers to become – or is it is it really our burden to shelter to to bring all of the 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 challenge of all of these media's into this? Is this all literacy the way that NCTE and ILA I think has made a statement saying that literacy is no longer con, uh, confined to just like the print and and everything else? Is that do do you think that this is correct that 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 English that this is the burden so to speak? of English teachers, that we are now media teachers. Is is literacy really that closely tied to media? I think if you look at the word composition, I mean, is that not what we have our students do? We have to write many compositions. It's what really the heart of uh, English has been about for, for ages, uh, being able to express yourself in, in a way that is logical and has reasons and uh, a way that is effective and empowering uh, to you and your audience. So I think in the world of composition, uh, the idea of creating uh, broadcast, the idea of creating TV series and films and podcasts and blogs and all of all of those things, uh, these multi-modalities as uh, they're talking about, I think all of that is in composition. So uh, my question is, are we composition teachers? And if we are, then we need to teach the students how to compose on these various media modalities uh, and do so effectively. And I think in that sense, yes. Now, where where I think it becomes difficult is if we're allowing our students to do that, how do we actually assess it? Those are always issues. How do you go about uh, creating a room where these things can happen? Uh, do you tell the students they all have to write a podcast or do you give them options of different multimodalities? So I think those are some things that need to, to happen. And then where it really gets difficult is where the teacher doesn't know how to use all of these because it's moving so quickly. 
And you're talking about uh, since you've been in school. Well, you know, I've been in school since the 70s. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot. When I started, when I started actually teaching, we didn't even have class, classrooms with telephones. We didn't even have telephones in the classroom, much less a computer. We had we had a chalkboard, you know, and you had one that wasn't all ruined if you were lucky. Right. It's like Harry Potter, you had to send owls to talk to people. Oh, pretty much. Pretty much. So exactly. <laughs> I live in the day of the uh, carrier pigeon. Now, um, but anyway, so but the whole thing is um so the changes and you know, when when I started playing around with technology and I, my librarian loved me because we had this, we had our first uh Mac uh computer uh lab and I would take my kids down there at this time when that all happened I taught English and geography as a block as I've shared this before and so we would actually go to one of our field trips one time was to go to a cemetery and uh, we had this uh, program called ArcView and ArcView was um, a mapping program, much like Google Maps works today. Uh, and so, but what the, what I actually taught my students to do was how to actually create a layered map using ArcView. We would go to a cemetery and they would, uh, at, we have some very old ones in this area where they have uh, some of the earliest uh, settlers and, you know, those kinds of things. And so we would actually map the cemetery where were your pioneers? Where's today? You know, where was uh, just a few years ago? And so they would map and put layers of, uh, of things on these computers and actually create a, a map that's layered like Google Docs is made, layered. And so we did this because we knew that this was a technology that was coming down the pike. And this was a way for, in geography, this was a way for students to make a living they could make a living if they knew how to use this this stuff because this art view was what uh, cities were using to to work out their infrastructure. And so they were layering, you know, where's the pipes? Where are the streets? Where's the, you know, the plumbing? Where does the gas line? So all of these were mapped and they're layers of maps and it was through art view. Now, then we would actually go and research uh, that and then the students would uh, create a presentation and we were doing this in 1997 uh, 98 and early 2000s so that's when all this was about well now we have we don't and, and the first gps systems we actually ordered some of those and the students would go out and use uh, the first gps systems that uh, we had available to us before they ever got into the cars and all this other stuff but the thing is, is, is I didn't know how to use that. We had to learn how to use it. And so they started hiring tech people to help us in our classrooms. Uh, and, uh, but sometimes the problem there is when they teach us, it's almost like a drive-by teaching. They come in, they say, oh, look at all these wonderful things this can do. And then they leave and you're like, great. You go back to your classroom. It's still happening today. You know, I have that smart board, right? I went to that class. She told me all these wonderful things. I now know what it can do, but I don't know how to do it because I can't remember the buttons to push. So I think that is our biggest issue. Uh, if we're going to expect teachers, uh, English language arts teachers to 
use these multimodalities in the classroom, we at least to be, you know, we don't have to know exactly how to do it because some of our students can do it better than we can, but we need to know how to access. We need to have ways to be able to um, work with these things in our classroom and feel confident uh, so that it, it runs smoothly. But anyway, those are some things that, that I'm not afraid of this stuff. And I think that's why I was successful in that makerspace uh, because I do go out there and I try. But boy, nothing more. It goes so fast that now the next time you try it, you know, they have a whole new program and you don't know how to use that program. And so, it, you know, by the time we get it in the classroom, it's already, sometimes this stuff's already uh, too old. Correct. And I think, uh, and we're, I think we're probably going to circle back to that point. Cause I think that's a, a great point that they end up getting to in this, but there, mm-hmm. there's two things I want to point out here. One is, okay. uh, back to the article, they talk about that broadening of communication, right? Broadening the, the, the landscape opens greater opportunities for student voice and agency as they move from users and consumers to participators and creators. I think this is really I mean, this right here is, uh, I mean, this is, in my opinion, that line right there, moving from users to consumers to participators and creators, this is our whole goal with craft and draft, right? Yes. It's the, it's, it's taking of kind of the traditional classroom where you sit here and just get knowledge, right? And then you prove to me you have the knowledge, but we're, every conversation we have, or at least, you know, 80% of the conversations, uh, is, Okay, so we're studying this. Now, how do they use this? How do they go beyond just reading uh, articles? How do we get them to write articles? How do we get them not just to consume research but to write research or to use research? How do we get them to not just consume poetry but to write poetry and to be poets, right? The whole concept of the the strategy that – we talk about often is read like a reader and then read like a writer, right? That, that mm-hmm. idea is that it's going from consumer to participator, right? From consumer to creator. I think that is the, the beautiful part about workshop is that is one of kind of the, the fundamentals that we're pushing uh, for. And I think I'm just glad to see that here. I think it's a great idea. I think it's something that's challenging. Um, I think a lot of curriculum, uh, limits us from doing that uh, because it's so heavily focused on the test. And if you don't have administrators or district, um, which we do, thankfully, that, it, but if you don't have people that support you moving into this, right, moving into the creator aspect, right? I tweeted uh, earlier today about, and I talk about it in my book, where the, we, writing specifically is always seen as a bridge to content rather than the content itself, right? We focus on response rather than creation. Um, and they talk about writing in this article as well, but it's this idea that this is, this is, uh, I feel like this is the revolutionary aspect of kind of modern education that a lot of people are pushing to because some of the traditionalists, you know, the, the reason people love classics is because the books are great, but it's also because of this traditional idea that we should all have this same cultural touchstone. And we've, we've defended this idea, um, before we've strong manned it, so to speak. And I don't disagree with that necessarily, but I think the need for that is lessened, uh, especially when we get here. Now the, here's where we get to an, an interesting aspect that I want to touch on because, uh, this right here, this quote um, that I am trying to find real quick. Uh, here we go. So this quote is where I was kind of poking at just now. And this is something that 
is making its rounds in certain circles. And I think this is where English teachers specifically, we have to discuss this because this is fascinating. Uh, So in this article, they say, the time has come to decenter book reading and essay writing as the pinnacles of English language arts education. Speaking and listening are increasingly valued as forms of er, of expression that are vital to personal and professional success. And with the rise of digital media technologies, they now occur in both synchronous and asynchronous formats. And they go on to kind of defend this a little bit. They talk about the research shows that we need to move beyond the exclusive focus on traditional reading and writing. Um, They say, for example, secondary school students lack critical reading comprehension skills that require them to distinguish between journalism and sponsored content. Um, This is interesting. The time has come to decenter book reading and essay writing. And I think you and I firmly stand in the on the on to move beyond essay writing. I think we've said that in a million different ways on this show specifically. But the decentering of book reading, Miss Ochoa, what that's an interesting that's an interesting phrase, is it not for for an English uh, piece? So I, I would say I don't really want to dissenter book reading. Uh, I I just really think it's important that they read books, and I think that they need to be able to do all of it personally. Uh, so I don't know. I think I, I think I have a problem with that statement, to be honest. But I I, I don't disagree with just writing an essay to write an essay. I. I I, I think they need to be able to do that as well, but I think they need to have a purpose behind it. And I think maybe this multimedia approach may give them that purpose. I mean, they still have to learn how to defend, um, to me, a claim. They have to be able to uh, present their ideas in a, in a logical manner. Uh, I, I don't think any of that logical thinking is needs to be taken out of this. But uh, so anyway, that's that's really kind of interesting. Well, and they, to be fair, so <clears throat> they go on and they talk about different types of text and whatnot. But they go on and say many teachers, whether consciously or unconsciously, tend to think curriculum as a zero-sum game in which the study of literature competes with other activities, including the study of persuasive genres of po- or popular culture. While updating our curricula beyond the canonical classics that have historically been taught, Uh, may be necessary, media education need not displace the study of literature. A growing number of teachers value the opportunity to help students make connections between classic literature and contemporary media texts to advance multicultural understanding and address issues of equity. So here they they essentially say, even though we're saying to de-center this, I think that I think English, the alarm bells go off with that. But I think a lot of what they're saying is decentering in 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 hopes of bringing in all of these other things. Now, here's this is the crux of my question and why I really once once I got to this part, I was like, oh, we have to talk about this because I, I I'm processing this right. I'm not coming to this conversation really with with set answers. I'm just kind of consuming and live thinking for people. But this idea that. We decenter literature, but we still use books. Okay, sweet. Love it. Let's go. Uh, But then they start talking about bringing in all these other things. And my question is, we already struggle in a block to cover everything that we need to cover just on this basic side. Now, we have multimodal standards that we hit. We have all of those. So we're bringing in some of this. But I would argue that 
the way that this is being presented the amount of weight they're pushing on these other factors to bring in all of these other things. And even Kelly Gallagher and Penny Kittle in their latest book, they talk about digital composition like this, right? They talk about bringing these other things in. Um, we, I feel like what is, what is being advocated for here is something that I don't know if we have the, the proper, the, the time to do this. I mean, we have a block. I mean, we already struggle in like our eighth grade team, for instance, they don't have a block. They have like a 43 minute period to do reading and writing and they struggle, right? They, it's an active struggle between reading and writing and having the proper time and the proper reading time and all this other stuff. And this is the same across the United States and beyond into other countries. And my question here, just like to myself and to you and to everyone is if, if we, I mean, I mean, it's such a massive overhaul. It's like, do we have the space for this? In my head, I'm like, I feel like this is advocating for a whole other class, a, a, a media a me, sorry, a media literacy class to where th- that becomes something fundamental to schools. And then English focuses on the, the underlying communication through those things. I don't know. I mean, do you, I mean, in your vision for English teachers, and you've seen a lot of changes for English teachers over the years, I mean, is this realistic to expect this? Is is this the future of English classrooms where we now become the the media class? Well, it may be. I mean, I, I, you know, but I will say that right now we're reading The Outsiders, right? And we're also reading The Giver. Those are, you know, older classical books that have been around for ages. And uh, one of the things that uh, our colleague and I, what we're doing is we are actually finding articles and um, maybe haven't tried different videos or different other things. So we could do that. But so we'll be reading a chapter to a certain point and then we'll bring in uh, some things that are present today Uh, and talk about that with the students and do like a compared text type thing. And so the students are actually responding that way. I don't know if that touches on this, but you you would almost have to redesign your lessons to incorporate a variety of things. Uh, The other thing I did too, you know, we did that research project uh, and I did this through through the product and my students chose all different products for to rather than just an, a research essay. So they wrote various products. So I had uh, some students, many of them chose, and I let them choose whatever they wanted, as long as they had to let me know what they were going to do so that I could approve it. But I wanted them to try something they never tried before. So I had several of them create, um, using Google Sites, created websites for uh, the basis of their uh, understanding, uh, you know, to present it. So I, I think we might could do it, uh, some of that that way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, we've had so many changes as it is. Uh, they're, they're probably not going to offer a new, another class. I just don't see that happening. One of the, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. So it's, it's always a question of, with infinite choice, right, there becomes infinite uh, – or you – every choice we make, it, it limits what we can do, right? When you have – when you opt for more independent reading, 
you cut off time for more group reading, right? When you opt for more group reading, you cut off time for independent reading when you, you know, and these are all trade-offs and we've detailed several times about why we choose to do a lot of independent reading and independent writing and, and choice and all of that. But that comes at a cost of other things. Um, and it's, and it's always a cost, uh, reward process. And I think this is, I think what they're hitting on, whether anyone accepts that this is kind of the new role of English teachers, uh, is I think it's probably just going to happen anyway, and because it's it's already kind of built in. English teachers are seen as the almost like the grab all, right? We we see this when we talk about uh, cross curricular stuff. Who's who's always involved in that? It's English teachers, right? Oh, we can have English teachers help us with this. They can do research on this in their class because we don't have time to do it in science or history, right? They can write papers about this in English class because we don't have time to do it in science and history, right? This has kind of always been the case, and English teachers take it in stride. And we also understand that this is uh, – like we, we support it, right? We The cross-curricular stuff and doing that and that, that wonderful combination of working across contents is also great. But I think there is a question, and I don't know if I have the answer, to how – what are we losing in that aspect? Because there is, there is a, tr- a tradition of English teaching that I think that while we've pushed it a little bit, right? We don't uh, idolize the canon where we teach as as much as some other places, but we don't disregard it, right? I mean, when kids get to high mm-hmm. school, I mean, they're still like all, most of our teachers at our high school, you know, they're still teaching the Great Gatsby and Great Expectations and the Scarlet Letter and Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. I mean, all of it, right? And the right. Odyssey, and and so it's not like it's it's gone, but the it's it's kind of it's just not as centered as much and i feel like this is just another push for that because the more we bring in other things it's like well i mean how long is it before we're now teaching uh you know where it, tweets are are the the analysis of what we're doing and how to write effective tweets and th- this is already happening i mentioned that my teacher was doing it back when i was in school but it's it's not i wouldn't say it's the the pervasive way or how how do we write how do you create a viral meme, right? Or what's it like to like, what kind of posts are you doing on Instagram and stuff like that? Like all of that is interesting. And I think it's fascinating. And I think those are all various things that we can support with. But the more we bring in that stuff, the, the, the classical analysis of literature and these cultural touchstones, you can kind of see, you know, you know, off into the future where, People no longer understand when they talk about the green light across the lake or whatever. Like, what does that even what does that even mean? Right? It, there's no cultural relevance whatsoever a, after a certain point. I I don't know. Is is this a good thing? Is it is it good that we lose all of these massive cultural touchstones besides the people that go to college and study in literature like a bunch of dorks? Right? You know. <laughs> like, like uh, now, you just call most of our audiences dork. <laughs> you know that, right? Just kidding. I'm, you know, including your colleague. You know what's so funny is I'm <laughs> infinitely jealous of people that did that because I did not. I did not major oh. in English, and I would have loved my my wife took more English classes than I did, and I loved reading all of the short stories and like weird stuff that she had to read and essays. I like did them all for her because I just I loved oh. it so much. So when I say dorks, it's it's from a loving place. But anyway, oh, okay. it's it's the question of. Uh, of what are we what are we losing the more we bring or maybe we're not losing anything you know and i i just like i said i don't really have an answer to this currently it's my 
I tend to lean towards this is good. This is what we should be doing. We should be evolving. If our classrooms of today look like the classrooms, you know, 30 years ago, I think that's probably a problem considering that change is change. Change does everything. And if we're really interested in setting up kids to be successful, literate human beings, I mean, is it just as valuable to under be able to read the scarlet letter as it is to be able to write something that's effective on social media or read something effectively on social media? I, I mean, I know there's a pride in English teachers like, of course, they need the scarlet letter. Of course, they need to be able to dive into these things. But in actual reality, they need to know what type of post they're reading on Facebook before they believe something random or get hyped up about something that doesn't exist and be able to dismantle media information, right? They need to be able to know when they're being advertised to or when an influencer is really just having, you know, talking about something that is, that's a, that's a, a new literacy, so to speak. I mean, it's always been around. It's just never been as pervasive. And it's like, when it comes to what's more effective for their lives, I, I'm, I, it's hard for me to say, well, of course they should have the cultural touchstone of the, of the scarlet letter. It's going to help. It's going to help more people than them being able to dismantle or not dismantle, uh, to, to break down, uh, social media to where to decide what they're going to do. And I, I don't, I feel like that's a controversial opinion, but I don't know. Let me ask you this. Was the Scarlet Letter not the first text message? <laughs> right. I mean, see, and there's that. And there's, there's social mean, implications, it... right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, how do we shame people today through social media? Yeah. The so, pile on. so you could. So, so if you're, but you need to, if you're going to teach these things, then I think you need to figure out a way to apply them to today. And then you show them examples of today to help them see, look, these things haven't changed. These are human. That's what makes the canon so, so important is because it's common themes that happen no matter where you're at in society or what year you were there. Now, I'm not saying there are things that haven't changed, but I think if you're going to keep the canon, then I think to meet uh, this new uh, uh information that we're just now talking about to, to meet this criteria, I think you need to actually layer it with things that are happening today that are similar to what the students are doing uh, today. And, and what did the people then, I mean, they made judgments, right? They made stereotype judgments and they shamed people for things that they were doing themselves. So are we not doing that same thing today? And then you would bring that about and you would um, share that with the students in some sort of lesson and then now have the students create maybe a counter argument using the same method. I don't know. It'd be kind of interesting to see, but that's just what I, I was just thinking that that, uh, when you said that the Scarlet letter was probably the first, uh, tweet. <laughs> well, and I think, I think that is the interesting part of this where, uh, pretty much like anything that there, nothing's binary, right? Which is mm-hmm. the, I think it comes down to, yeah, you're probably going to have, if this is the future, right? I, I think, you know, you'll have less time for, like you'll you'll have less touchstones, but you know, 
Kelly Gallagher, for instance, you know, he always made time for 1984 and all of these other books. And he probably, uh, I think he would be agree with this is that he, whatever the amount of books that he used to teach, like it, it shrunk, but they started using other things to kind of support those. Right. And even though you and our partner, you know, using the giver and the outsiders, y'all really haven't pulled in a bunch of, of these books, right? You haven't done a bunch of these novels. You've kind of shrunk it and done these things. And I think that's, that's the interesting part of this is figuring out, you know, yeah, these classics have been around a long time for a reason. They're, they're some of the most distilled versions of humanity, which is why people still connect to them after so many decades and whatnot. Um, and it's like, well, okay, so what signs do we see, you know, in the scarlet letter, you know, how does the pile on happen? Right. We, Cancel culture is the scarlet letter, right? Like that is oh. <laughs> that that that's exactly what that is. And so mm-hmm. there is that. And you know, I know I reference Great Gatsby and the Green Light or whatever, but you know, Gatsby, I mean the the drive for money and what you'll do for money and acceptance is is the the world of social media today. It's the it's the existing in a space where you want nothing more than to be happy and love and and money, but at, at what at what cost? And so I think for people who are raising the the red flag with this, um, I think it's while everyone's valid or has their opinions can be validated or whatever. I think ultimately a lot of this is really good. Now there's there's some other aspects to this that we didn't touch on, and this is huge. And I recommend everyone else go dive into this, but. I think that the general idea of this is just a call for classrooms that are modernized, um, at least to a certain degree, where teachers are no longer experts in just one thing, that communication is vast. And while they still advocate for the use of literature and everything, perhaps a decentering of certain aspects. Now, that's, that's an interesting thing. Now, I would argue that to center it around reading and writing and then everything else is the satellite, That that's how... I kind of think about it is at the core is reading and writing and then everything else, this media stuff is, is the satellites rather than pushing books to the side, so to speak. Cause what, what else is being centered? Right. I guess what's being centered here is, I don't I guess they're saying multimodal is being centered. They really don't, unless I'm right. missing something, they really don't say what to center. It's more like whatever. And I was like, well, I mean, if it's going to be a, if it's going to be an English classroom, then center books and writing specifically. Now it doesn't have to be specific books. It doesn't have to be the canon necessarily, but books and writing and mm-hmm. then everything else kind of augments that. And I think that's, that's at least, I don't know what we're talking about here, but one other thing I wanted to kind of point out uh, as we kind of close out, go ahead. Oh no, I, I didn't mean to, I'm sorry. I don't know what you're about to say. I, uh, I was, I was just going to say, uh, I put down here that the one thing that can make all of this work is workshop model. So yeah. that's what I was going to say. Well, and that's that. So that that's what I was going to say is the you and I think alike. I was going to talk about how <laughs> well workshop because this is the what workshop does, and I think why we love it so much is it it takes off these artificial constraints of certain things because you can empower students to bring in this stuff, right? Uh, to, to use these different things. And now it helps to be knowledgeable about this and it helps to be able to, you know, if you're teaching the Scarlet Letter, I know we have a bunch of elementary teachers um, that listen to this, but like if you're teaching Holes, for instance, right? Uh, if Holes is a book that you're focusing on or, or something like that, or maybe a picture book or something, the 
though these books all have relevant touchstones, right? Books are human. And so bringing in these other ideas about these things and, and talking about, uh, honesty, like holes is all about corruption, right? And it's all about the, the secret things we do to get what we want, right? I mean, there's a bunch of other right. things in there, but that's, that's definitely a core theme and that exists throughout all of this. And so ca- a calling for this, you can have students, the, the beauty of workshop is you, you, the time is built into, to go off and read what you want and to make these connections. And so if you're doing your core mini lesson on stuff, advocating for students to bring in their other stuff from their independent work, I think is the, is the golden is the golden thing of this, right? And this is and this increases access um, because we we talk about access in physical form, and the article talks about it. it talks about how schools are going to have to invest in more technologies, right? It's not enough just to have Chromebooks, right? It's not enough to have any of these things. You have to have to have these huge budgets essentially for this, and that's a definite podcast for another time and (laughs) that's a whole nother i mean yeah and that's and that's essentially what this is calling for is is a a revolution of the access to technology in schools and whatnot and uh that that's worth pointing out but we don't i think what is a nice point to put a bow on this conversation at least for today is we don't talk enough about access to the the ability to think Right. We that that is a uh, that's a hidden level of access. And that's what workshop kind of freeze is. We talk about the artificial uh, the artificial constraints around education. We, we put up these barriers to entry to writing. No, you can't write what you want. You have to pick an idea from this list and then you have to do an outline and I have to approve of the outline. And then after the outline, you have to draft and we're going to spend very specific three days of drafting. And then we're going to have an editing day and all of this stuff. And these are artificial barriers to just letting kids write and go and, and put more words on the page. And we do the same thing for reading. It's like, well, not only are you going to read, you're going to read this specific thing and you're going to read 10 pages today. And after those 10 pages, you're going to summarize it. And after that summary, you're going to turn this in to get a grade and you're going to, and then we're going to do vocabulary work based on your summary. And you know, it's all this stuff. It's like, just like, Oh my God, just like, why are we putting up these barriers all the time? Should barriers exist sometimes to really funnel kids into something? Sure. Do what you need to do to get through your curriculum, to get kids to master what they need to master. But why are we artificially doing this all the time? And I think that is that is essentially what we argue for in workshop. What this piece argues for is the access to ideas, the access to knowledge, the access to being able to use this knowledge in ways that are productive in the classroom to where we can cover content and give them real world skills so they're successful just in life. And I, it's hard to argue with that, right? Just in that general point. There's other things, like we said, this is a very long piece. There's all kinds of things in here that you may or may not agree with. But I think that core point, I think it's, you know, maybe bring down the red flag and be like, all right, let's explore this. How do we, how do we mold the old with the new? And I think, honestly, I think workshop is the best format to do that. Well, I, I think so. And then, but really, truly, if you want engagement, uh, my students were very engaged when they had the opportunity to go out and explore different venues, if you will, or modalities uh, in order to uh, express what they've learned. So I, I, I do. I, I've, I've always uh, embraced this new idea. Just have It's just hard to figure out how to do it. And I think you're right. Workshop is really the only way to 
allow the students to go out and explore. And then you're no you're no longer have to be the knowledge of how all this works, which I told you was very difficult at the beginning because you didn't know how to do all these things. But let the students find out how it works and then create this community of learning where students are helping each other and you're they're helping you and you're helping them and uh, you create this community um, of learning. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Craft and Draft. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you had fun with this. I hope you go read the article for yourself and check it out. Highlight it. Mark it up. You know you do. You know you got those flare pins going. You got those highlighting tools. I know what you're doing, teachers. You're over there. You're ready to read this article if you have it. We'll probably put a link to it in the post uh, if you want to go check it out. But you can just search NCTE position statements. There's the last one. It's called Media Education English Language Arts. It's fascinating. We literally only made it maybe 15%, 20% through this bad boy. So uh, it is it is a hefty one. But go check it out. Let us know what you think. Send us a DM. Maybe ask a question. I don't know. Challenge our takes on certain things. I don't know. Whatever you want to do, that is your prerogative. But we love interacting with you. If you want to do that, you can support us on Patreon. You get first dibs on everything. You get to stay in contact with us, send questions, uh, and vote on stuff. Sometimes we don't know what to do, and we ask questions, and y'all decide for us, which is absolutely wonderful. If you want to see a certain topic on the show, email us. We will see what we can do. We're going to add more content to the content to the Patreon very soon. So join ASAP so you don't miss anything. Subscribe so you don't miss any of our free and available episodes. Leave a review if you enjoyed this podcast. And know that we are here. For you.